Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello everyone, and welcome to, uh, well, we're going to be joined by more of the regular personnel as this goes on. We've been told that DrakenFL is taking a large delivery, and Jamie is otherwise engaged. So, you are starting off Bilge Pumps, episode 120, and honestly, we're going to be talking about presents, because we feel like talking about presents, but not presents, presents. And it's myself, Dr. Az Clark, and it's Dr. Sal Mercadano, who, of course, is quite often the guest on Bilge Pumps, so pretty much he's there, he's the fourth Bilge Pump. So technically, I would say we do have enough people to have a Bilge Pumps, a Bilge Pumps discussion, even if the rest don't actually show up. So, how are you doing, Sal? How goes life and your excellent YouTube channel? I, I am doing fine, Alex. Thank you for having me. I, I don't think I could fill in for both Jamie and Drac, but I'm going to do a very poor American impersonation of a, of a bilge pump today. So uh, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to be with you. It's always fun. Although I, I'm sure, well, Drac literally, and I already said sent this uh, sent this uh, this message to us before we just before we, when we were supposed to start in the middle of receiving a large delivery. Go ahead without me. This could be a while. There's and no telling what is being delivered right now to Drax's house. We know let, that, Let's right? be honest. At the moment, he's currently working on his Greek fire project. So it could be something for that. He's got his whole new... He, he's got all his armor he's working on. He's got all the new weapons he's been looking at recently. Could be some a book supply, because let's be honest, my book drop-offs are fairly large as well. Uh, never quite large enough. It takes me a, wh a while to take them in, but that's usually because I just attach the corgi and tell him to mush. It works quite quite well. Um, but you know, there there are lots of options. But speaking of large deliveries, last week in our time, not but probably by the time this comes out, we I had a very interesting message from Sal, and it was. Just listen to the latest. Uh, latest An OPV, to me, is one with a long loiter time and can operate independently. I made that pitch recently for the USCG, new, uh, well, the US Coast Guard National Security Cutter, which has a huge range visa of the Burke, which run out of fuel at 4,000 miles. And, well, we thought if you're going to come to us with a topic and make our lives easy, hello, let's have you on, Sal. So... Before we started, I have to say I did already mutter the idea that, frankly, ocean patrol vessels could be offshore patrol vessels could be changed to offshore presence vessels, and then we and then they'd actually explain what they do. But um, how about you take us from there? I, you know, I enjoyed the discussion. I thought it was a great one, as always. And I, I mean, your point, which I think was a very valid point that was made by you and the guys was talking about what, what constitutes an offshore patrol vessel. Because like you said, there's no set size on these things. They, they right. can range from a few thousand tons to 10,000 tons. And I, it goes the, back let's to be the, honest, some of the Japanese and Chinese ones are absolutely freaking colossal. They, they are. The Chinese ones particularly are just massive when you, when you look at them. And it, it goes back, I, th I think, to a fundamental question about what do navies need 
offshore patrol vessels for? What what's their purpose? And and it comes down to me to two issues. One is 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 kind of a coast guard or law enforcement issue where you want a vessel to do kind of a a law enforcement. And the second is for it to be off the shore or in an area for a long extended period of time. And you know, within the US Navy, we're having this debate right now, this question about the the the, the 20s. You know, we're going to be gapped for a long time getting vessel platforms out. And th there's a concern about what is referred to as the Davidson window. This is the the, the period of time identified by Admiral Davidson, the former Indo-PACOM commander who said that in the late late 2020s is going to be a very vulnerable period for the United States. And you can't up production. You know, we're building a new frigate, the Constellation class, but that's not expected to go operational until 2030, even though we're basically just taking a frem and updating it and changing it around. It, it's taking that long for the U.S. to do it. I would and, point out to this anytime anyone says, well, we'll just buy the frigate design off the shelf. It does take it. You always have to adapt it to your own needs and it's always going to take time. It's one of the interesting things with the Australia project. The amount of people keep going, oh, well, you know, if the Type 26 is, we, we spent so much money on this Type 26, but what will be quicker in than taking that is to go and take something, another design and just build that. You won't take that design and just build it. You will modify it and have to put it in. And then you have to build the facilities in Australia to build that. And it's still going to take the same amount of time. Right. This is why I'm very confident that Jamie will have Virginia class submarines within the next week or two. Uh, no, it's it's going to be yeah. forever. The, the, the amount of stupid stuff that gets talked about with defense and procurement. It's it, it's crazy. And, and I, I go back again to this issue of what what, especially in the U.S., what do you need? a vessel to do, and off, especially like an offshore uh, uh, patrol vessel. And it, in the case, the United States has one that's in production right now. And I would argue that the national security cutters, what are called the legend class in the United States, which are being built down in Pascagoula, are perfect examples of, of what the U.S. needs. Now, this is a vessel that competed for the frigate contract. This is one that they, 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 they had put out there and it, it lost. And I, I think they need to reconsider that because the production line is up and running. They're, they're producing them. Matter of fact, they just have an option for a 12th one. And the Coast Guard basically says, we don't need it. We, we, we don't need another one. We're good. We got what we need. They originally had a much smaller procurement in mind. But these vessels, what, what makes them different for me is their range. Their range is, is 12,000 miles versus a 4,000-mile range for a Burke-class destroyer. Because these vessels don't need to be zipping around on gas turbines and just burning fuel. And for me, one of the things, another element of an offshore patrol vessel is it can operate independently for a long period of time. It, it doesn't need an oiler or a supply ship really tacked onto it. You know, it can basically go out and do its presence mission with it. Does it have the capabilities of a first line destroyer? No, but it's not meant to be. It's meant to be exactly what we want it to do, which is show the flag, do elements of a presence mission, have self-defense capabilities on board, which for the legend class, they do. Uh, they've got that ability to, to self-defend and to you know provide that kind of presence platform you want in an area. And the other argument I keep going back to on this is when you don't have vessels like this, when you don't have the river class, when you don't have vessels that can do this, then you have to put your first line units up there. They have to be doing the missions. 
that normally would be done by these uh, OPVs. And that takes that vessel out of training. It takes it out of maintenance. It takes it out of working up with the fleet. Go back to, you know, again, I go back always to how the U.S. was developing its fleet prior to World War II with the fleet problems. And you don't have that because you've got to send your first line units out to go be that frontline presence. And to me, again, the, the comment against this is going to be, well, you're creating another class of vessels within the U.S. Navy. But the Coast Guard already has them. They're already producing them. So we've got the maintenance. We've got the supplies. Uh, the the constructor of it, the builder of it, Pascagoula, has a variant. They can modify this into a Navy variant they've been trying to push for a long time. And I, I think it gives you everything you want. It's not as fast, 28 knots. But then again, that's what you want for an offshore but patrol vessel. I would say there is a small problem with it, okay? And it's just a small problem. I think the U.S. Coast Guard is going to get a 12th a of the class, whether they want it or not. Unfortunately, Congress spent too much money and are too committed to the idea that even if the, on the, the even if I think if even if the U.S. Coast Guard said we physically do not want this ship in front of the co Congress, they're still going to get it. Yep. But I would say there's a small problem for the for also for U.S. Congress. You see, uh, for them, if you showed them a picture of the Zato Calas patrol cutter, which is the Chinese equivalent which is uh, 12,000 tons sent full displacement. And they've got two of those. And then Legend Class, which is a mere 4,600 tons. They're never going to get worked up about it. This is an organization which had Tillman as its head of its naval committee. They're not going to get worked up by something which is less than half the displacement of what they are now sort of starting to consider might be their peer threat. Might be. But I think I think the other problem is presence and gunboat diplomacy are dirty words these days. I get that meaning uh, the whole time. And having a ship which is actually procured for that role spanks spank sort of imperialism to so many people. And when really it was just good naval resource management. And I think that's the problem we're dealing with. People, uh, it's thinking through naval resource management and what you're going to do with it. What do you need ships for? In, uh, Britain has sort of edged that way with the Type 31s and the Type 26s. We're sort of edging. We've got the river class, the patrol vessels. We've got the Type 31s, which are next level up. And then we've got the Type 26s, which are our, basically our warfighting frigates. Type 2031s are presence vessels slash flak frigates, I call them. People keep going, oh no, they're just they're just for presence missions. And I go, no, look at the guns they're armed with. You stick one of those next to your carrier, you've suddenly got a nicest way close in air defense of a lot of metal being put in the air. And until we have a more reliable method of dealing with hypersonics, etc., being able to stick up a wall of metal between your carrier and the incoming missiles is a fairly good option. Wouldn't you agree, Sal? Or is no, it I, I, think, I think it is. And, and again, it goes to the issue, too, about hull numbers and which is which is a fascination with the U.S. Navy. For some reason, uh, it's always an issue in the number of vessels they have and the priority of it. And, you know, there's been a lot of attention drawn to this. I mean, we had in the United States a 60 minutes piece that that talked about the state of the Navy where, you know, senior commanders came on and, and really laid it out pretty pretty starkly and you had two different it was very interesting that you had two different 
perspectives. You had that of the Indio, Indo-PACOM commander uh, basically talking about the concerns he had uh, versus that of the chief of naval operations who was saying, you know, basically all's well, everything's good. Uh, and, and and so definitely two different views coming out. And right now, in, you know, in the U.S. Congress, there is a lot of discussion. I, I mean, you now have this committee looking at China specifically by Congressman Gallagher, former Marine, who's doing that. Uh, there's a lot of issues, uh, hearings almost, it seems like almost every other day on state of armed forces and especially with the Navy uh, in terms of their shipbuilding. And it just, it, there's a plethora, almost almost a, a, a drumbeat, and I hate to use that phrase, of issues raising about the concerns of the, the size of the U.S. Navy. Uh, I was just watching a, a discussion on a new book coming out uh, about naval uh, statesmancraft by Brent Sadler, for example. Mm. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of issues. It's getting a lot of attention and not just among groups like us who talk about this all the time, but people outside. And, you know, I, I think the construction of some vessels where I think there's also an appeal in some ways to talk about vessels that are not pure warfighters, but in this presence mission. But I think you're right. I think you do have to worry about the idea because what we're talking about here is a gunboat. You know, I go back to almost the 1920s, 30s era, you know, Erie class gunboats built by the U.S. Navy, which were never intended to go toe to toe with another vessel. They were designed to be in areas where you don't want a warship, but they carried a heavy armament before basically just to impose it on them, just to look impressive. And, you know, in some ways, I think that's what you want with an offshore patrol vessel. You want a vessel that can defend itself. It's got weapons on it, but it's never intended to be a pure combatant. I think that's also part of the trouble that things get, they get obsessed with being, things being pure combatants, being combatants. It's the, the be all and end all. Sometimes you listen to people talk to ship designs is they're talking about their warfighting capability. And you sit there and go, yes, warfighting capability matters. That needs to be viable. But the ship also needs to be useful for peacetime. And you need to think about it. And there are some ships, let's be honest, if you consider the example I tend to give is battleships versus battle cruisers. When you're building those two ship vessels, people always focus on, on the battleships and they go, oh, yes, they're big, they're fighting. They are good, they are. But they are usually wartime vessels. They are the vessels which, in nicest way, you keep quite close to home. Normally in peacetime, they don't wander around much. Uh, maybe in the UK, since they'll sit in the Mediterranean as well as the Atlant as well as the home fleet, but that's about it. And they're big, they're fighty, but you don't really want to overtax them because in wartime you really need them to go and blast up mm, out of anything. But battle cruisers, well, they're also cruisers, and they are designed to go wandering around the world in peacetime and in wartime. And it's really interesting. One of the reasons why they tended to cost so much more as well was because of some of the provisions you put in a ship for it to go for the long-range cruising missions, the space for the crew. Because people don't think of uh, people think about the missiles a ship has. They don't think the size of the mess it has, the size of the facilities it has for the crew to go around the world and do the offshore placement. And it's one of the other issues. It's going to sound strange. I'm noticing with the modern navy because a lot of them are being called on to do presence missions. A lot of these ships are being called to do it. And if you consider for Britain, it wasn't until we really got the Type 45s that anyone had gone back and gone, you know what, we can't afford to build messes which are designed for basically the minimal spacing allowance. We actually have to give our people some space, because if they're going to be away for months at a time, 
they need space to live. And it's not, it's if you're getting something like that not right for the presence mission, it's very easy to see how you can go from the point of view of, well, it's got to be a big warship or we've got it, you know, or that it's not worth sending. And actually, the whole point with naval diplomacy and naval presence is often is you do start off with a smaller, if you're doing something, you start off with a smaller, less powerful vessel. I was doing a discussion the other day as a bit of a sort of thing to start off with people thinking about it was you don't come into a room and shout, I beat HMS Daisy. No one does. Daisy's a small ship. Daisy's a flower class. Shouting you beat it is not going to impress anyone. I beat the daisy sounds vaguely rude. <laughs> but it doesn't sound like something you should be proud of doing and definitely not mention in public. But leaving that to one side, that was that was part of the reason of the flower class with their naming. And if you look at some of the sloops the Royal Navy has, they're named after small fishing villages and towns, etc. And they're nothing you want to shout home about about beating. They don't sound intimidating. And they would just be turning up be a presence. And he goes, going, you know what we are. You can beat us, yes. But the thing is, can you beat the bigger guys which will, and girls which will come behind me? Because I might be a small thousand ton sloop, but somewhere over the horizon is a 30,000 ton battleship with 15 inch guns, which will quite happily squash you. Right. And, and you know, I, I went down a rabbit hole not too long ago where I got into looking at because I, I took a, a class. I just finished teaching a class on world maritime history. And we took I took mm -hmm. my class down to the battleship North Carolina in Wilmington. Yeah. And we were on board doing the tour and of course everybody's fascinated in the guns and, and a lot of elements on it but the thing that, that sent me down the rabbit hole was they were re they were refinishing one of the launches from it They're, they were doing over the launches and we were at the yeah. area where they stowed the boats and what, what really amazed me was that that vessel held 27 different types of boats and it was just an incredible yeah array of watercraft it, it, it held and I went down this rabbit hole looking at cruisers mainly and all the launches and everything they had and everything from the Admiral to the captain's launch and, and how important those were for when they arrived in port for those to be the image that was seen of the vessel when they arrived and, and the amount of work that went in on maintaining yeah. these vessels and, and, and doing it. And, and that was done for a variety of reasons, but not the least of which was to impose you know, a professionalism and a presence mission in many mm. ways, because this is the, this is how you were conveyed to and from the vessel lots of times, because you didn't dock it. You know, most of them were at anchor. And so that was your, your method for going to and from the vessel. And I, I think that's what is a big element too, is, 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 okay, what are you trying to convey with your vessel? You know, especially now with vessels that don't, appear like you know slava class cruisers with weaponry just oozing off them you know you have to make yourself look imposing vls cells are fantastic but they don't really show you a lot of well a lot of power you don't see them and and so how, how do you convey that when you're out there doing a presence mission in some ways and so you need that capability of of of, of showing the, showing the flag in, in, in many ways. And I think if you look at the old cruisers, and I know you guys have had this conversation uh, many times before, where if you look at the pre-war, you know, the interwar cruisers, 
you know, an Arethusa or a York class, you know, it's, it's not designed, you know, it, it's not so much a warship presence war. Uh, it's not so much a toe to toe warship, but it's really a presence warship. It's really meant yeah. to be out there much like the Asiatic fleet was for the United States Navy. It was not designed to be that the, the tripwire war, it wasn't meant to go toe to toe with the Imperial Japanese Navy. It was a, it was a tripwire Navy. It was designed to be kind of expendable in some ways. Well, the whole Yangtze River forces, you know, the right. Royal Navy and the, they are entirely about a presence mission. The Royal Navy has no need for gunboats to go up and down its own rivers in the UK. If you're building boats specifically to go up and down gun, uh, rivers in China, you're not expecting to have access to those ships for long if, there's ever, if they're ever involved in a war. Because where are they going to go? Do you really want to take them out to sea? No, I mean, they, they have no mission but there. In fact, that's one of, the, one of the reasons the Navy built the Yangtze uh, gunboats in China. I mean, it just it's, yeah. it wasn't even needed to be built in the U.S. because they were going to be used in this area and 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 basically operate in them. But again, that's also the the flip side that we were talking about of, of their view of what are they viewed as out there, especially in places like China. When when you send a ship through the Taiwan Strait, what does China view that vessel as? We sit here and argue, well, it's a presence mission. It's a, it's a perfect presence mission, whereas they see it as as basically a gunboat sailing up the Yangtze between Taiwan and, and China. Mm -hmm. Although, let's be honest, and this is for people, this is always the one thing which I like to say, which um, shocks some of my students. But uh, China does its own version of that straight between the islands of Japan. They just did it with a, with a squadron yeah. sailing around there. And it's it, it's one of the fun things. Sometimes I get students who, and I don't know if you have this story as well, so they'll tell me, oh, I only ever see about ours, so it's us doing it. And I go, no, no. Lots of people do it, trust me. Russia likes to do it with the Japanese islands and, of course, with Norway occasionally in various points. Um, there's all sorts of fun with Svalbard that goes on. That's causing joy. But there again, there's a perfect scenario because recently the Russians did a... Well, the Russians didn't, but the, uh, one of the local companies on Svalbard, the Russian mining company, um, did a very military-looking parade very, very military-looking parade. Lots of people in gray, little green, uh, in green uniforms, and you sit there and go, "Now that'd be a perfect time for a uh, Norwegian OPV to be just sitting quietly in harbour." You wouldn't want a whole warship there because that would be escalating as of a full warship, but an OPV sitting in harbour, going, "Really." You're a load of people on jet skis. I have a 40 millimeter cannon. This will not be a long fight. You know, in nicest way, if you're at level which even I can just dispatch you, then have your fun parade, but no one really cares. And right, and I think that, that goes that's what you do in the presence mission. Sort of. It it is. And 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 again, I, I go back to the issue of of when you have nothing but the hammer, you know, a Burke class destroyer, a type 26 frigate, and you're using them for them, you're taking them away from something else. You know, yeah. there are times you want them there. There are times that, you know, you, I would never say you pull them all back and, and husband them in Pearl Harbor or on the West coast of the United States or Guam. But you, you, you want to be able to, 
the husband and have them ready to go. You know, I think I think that there's a question about, you know, there's a big debate in the U.S. Navy about forward presence versus mobilization, you know, because, you know, as you well know, if, if one third of your fleet is forward deployed all the time, you are that's a wartime level you're maintaining. You do not have the surge capability because it's taking two vessels to keep that one forward. Okay, two things. One, I've just noticed that the huge box behind Sal is the Titanic Lego project, uh, Lego build. So good luck with that. Yeah, that's that will take you a while. I'm still trying to complete my Belfast because they keep sending me the parts to because they didn't put all the parts in the box in the first place. Le uh, adding that, leaving that to one side though, this was the whole point of having sloops, etc. Because the Royal Navy would have the sloops in the fall, and even the U.S. Navy in the 1920s and 30s had sloop-like vessels. They were called cutters or various other things. And their job was to be most of the forward present. And then they'd be backed up by two or three cruisers on station who would wander around and go, hello, you didn't take any notice of my little sloopy friend. So I'm here to say hello. You take notice of my little sloopy friend or you get me to come say hello. But that meant the vast majority of the Royal Navy's cruisers, etc., were back in the UK or in the were in the home fleet or the Mediterranean fleet and able to be trained up. The vast majority of the Royal Navy's destroyers were back and able to be trained up. There was also usually a destroyer flotilla somewhere around in some stations as extra to the sloops. But yeah, the vast majority of the forces were back in those two concentrating those two main fleets. So it was a lot cheaper and easier to maintain them because you could have all the maintenance facilities and you could send those ships for regular docking. And it's going to sound strange, but then if accidents happen, you have a surge capability because you just take one of the ships that's from your central fleets and go, right, you go cover that ship that just had an accident. Someone said a tugboat, get them back here and we'll fix them. And that's, that's, no one was worried. No, there was no... There was no stress or muscle fuss over it. It was just, it happens. Life happens. We're investigated. We'll find it out, but we're not going to be worried. It's not going to dent our ability to be forward presence because also there's the other thing that you have the sloops. The other big advantage with sloops and OPVs, especially the smaller sloops, the thousand ton range, is they cost so little in comparison to the other ship, that you could put junior officers in them and they could ding them up to high come hell and it would be fine. They'd be dinged up, and then you could fix them, and they'd go on, go on away, or you could replace them. And your officer has learned all their lessons of command, commanding something you don't mind losing. It's actually designed in a way to be expendable, which sounds crazy to talk about when you're talking about a thousand-ton vessel. But in a navy which has regularly 30,000, 40,000-ton vessels, which cost millions and millions of pounds uh, at that time, and these days would be, what, billions of pounds. A thousand-ton vessel, which comes in at less than a hundred thousand pounds, yeah, ding machine. I, you, you know, I, I did a video not too long ago where I was talking about, okay, how do you, how do you increase the footprint for the U.S. Navy quickly until you could ramp up production and get yourself to the point where you're you're producing vessels on a scale comparable to what china does which is very difficult obviously because china is on just an unheard of scale for producing vessels and Especially you know one of the things time. Well, right 
And one of the things I talked about was, you know, take existing platforms that you're building. Uh, I talked about the national security cutter version, but we're also producing a small cutter for the Coast Guard that's about to end out what's called the fast response cutter. It's about 153 foot uh, uh, patrol uh, craft. Uh, we have some of them out in the Persian Gulf right now. They just replaced uh, the U.S. Navy Cyclone class that were out there and, and the older 110-foot uh, island-class boats. You know, if you take uh, half a dozen of those, put them, marry them up with one of the expeditionary support bases, the big uh, Alaska-class super tankers that are converted into basically yeah. floating islands, and you can station them out in areas, run these these fast response cutters, you know, paint them gray, put Navy crews on them, put a lieutenant, you know, an 03 or an 04 on there and let them run missions. And it's it's a great presence mission. It's 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 a good presence mission uh, to do it. And you, all of a sudden now you have uh, a, a kind of a you increase by a magnitude uh, your presence. They're smaller vessels. But they're out there operating. And I think one of the things it does, it gives, like you said, a lot of training to junior officers. Uh, it allows you to run a f almost like a fleet maneuver, a squadron maneuver in some ways. Oh, here comes mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, before anyone's, if anyone's listening, wondering what's happened, both our dogs have decided to jump up in laps at the same time. <laughs> I, th I think uh, Maui gets very uh, excited when we start talking about forward presence missions. Yes. Uh, so does mine. So does Raleigh. But I, I think all of a sudden you have that. I, I read a, a great book. Uh, I think it was last year. Uh, Claude uh, uh, Berube over at uh, yeah. the Naval Academy, his uh, book on wide seas, which talks about the yes. Jackson administration. And one of the things he talks about is the creation of overseas squadrons and the use of sloops and, and, and smaller vessels which were economical because, you know, we'd love to have a frigate out there, a sailing frigate back in the 1830s and 40s, but couldn't afford it. And mainly it was it was the production cost and the crew costs. But mm. if you have two or three sloops on a station, you can back them up with a frigate. And in time of war, which is exactly what winds up happening during the American Civil War, is you can upscale. And a lot of the uh, Mariners, sailors got their experience operating these smaller vessels together, and then you can jump up to a fleet command. That's what happens with guys like Farragut and DuPont and a few others. And, and I, think, I, I think, again, we miss that vital role of, of what we want our navies to do. Having, having vessels that are not able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a peer-to-peer uh, -peer is, is not a bad thing at times. That isn't a replacement for the Navy, but it, it, it serves an important well mission. In, in some ways, you can actually undermine a peer with them. And that's what the Royal Navy used to do regularly to the French and, sorry, to the Americans and various others. The Americans, the French, the Germans, there was a, there was that island where the Americans and the Germans both sent these huge ships. And it ends up in a, a whole issue going on. Uh, and there's a, I think there's a quite a big storm and it wrecks most of the ships apart from the Royal Navy ship. And basically, the Royal Navy sends a third-class cruiser. And just goes up and goes, it's the Royal Navy just looking and going, yes, you've all sent bigger ships than me. That's cute. But do any of you really want to pick a fight with me? Because then in the nicest way, you'll win, but you won't win against the next batch, which will turn up. So no, right, we are I, going I, to I'm have that... a peaceful, nice conversation. And then a storm comes in and it's the Royal Navy sloop, which actually survives, or third class cruiser, which survives. And the American ships, oh, they got wrecked, didn't they? That was that. I'm trying to remember the name of the incident now. 
It was a, oh. There was one on, in in Samoa. I remember it happened. Yes. And and uh, where where they were squaring off against Germans. I remember that. And typhoon or hurricane came in and and hit them. But you, you know, we go back to the third, second, first class cruisers, protected cruisers versus armored cruisers. Again, you know, served a, a vital role. You know, they they were you know you didn't need a massive armored cruiser out there. So you can send a Denver class protected cruiser, you know, the Des Moines to represent your interests in uh, the, the Levant, for example, on mm. the eve of World War One, And then you can reinforce it if you needed to. When war was coming, you can send your armored cruiser out there and they can be a little bit more imposing if you needed. And again, I, I think we, we tend to forget about that, the vital role that those ships do play. And I think, you know, in many ways, Royal Navy has a balance, which is which is a really good one. The U.S. Navy doesn't, I would argue. It really doesn't. The littoral combat ships don't operate in that role because littoral combat ships, for example, can't operate very far. They, they don't have a presence. They are not designed for long endurance stations. Uh, they're, they're, you know, the, they're, I'm not sure. What, when they designed littoral combat ships, I think someone seriously was smoking something. I think so, too. Because one, one person turned around to me and said, well, you know, you keep talking about there needing to be a nuclear powered cruiser whose one of their primary missions would be to be able to escort the aircraft carriers between theaters when they have to do high speed dashes. Well, that's the role for the literal combat ship. And I went, you would really trust your nuclear nuclear cruiser to the escort just of a literal combat ship. Really? You would? You really would? Really? No? I, I I don't know how the Navy, you know, I, I did this thought experiment not too long ago where I sat there and said, all right, ah, let's Someone let's else assume... agrees with me on the literal combat ships. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah nothing <laughs> gets uh, Maui more fired up than talking about LCSs. Uh, yeah. But, you know, I did this thought experiment on, okay, we go to war to defend Taiwan. How long does it take for the U.S. Navy to deploy carriers from the Atlantic? And, you know, you can fire up a Nimitz-class carrier and, and run at 40 knots. For a long period of time. I mean, it's nuclear fuel. Yeah. It's great. It's fantastic. You, you can you can put the throttle down and run with it. But there's nothing keeping up with you. There, there's nothing that stays with you. This and is the trouble it, getting rid of those nuclear cruisers, because in the nicest way, the Virginias were, there were many things said about them, but the thing was they could keep up with a frigating carrier. They could. I mean, I, everyone forgets about Task Force One and, and the Enterprise sailing around the world with Bainbridge and I think it was Truxton yeah. at the time. And it was just absolutely unbridled. You can operate those things everywhere. And, and the only thing you needed to put on board was fuel, uh, food every now and then and fuel for the, for, the, for the air wing. And that was it. But if you got to run a Nimitz class carrier out of Norfolk and get to Taiwan, you're either going through the Suez or around the Cape to get there. And if you got... And now that you get rid of the cruisers, because because again the Tycos are, are are going away, you know you got to run with Burke class destroyers. Burke class destroyers run out of fuel after four thousand miles. It's sixteen thousand miles to Taiwan. You've got to stop four times for fuel somewhere at the least, at the very least, to do that. And and either you have oilers prepositioned along the way, or you got to pull in and get fuel. And it takes you a month, a month to get from Norfolk to Taiwan going that way and and, and again I, I just don't think we, we think about that you know even, even in world war ii it goes it amazes me that go back to world war ii the u.s navy put on a requirement for all its its 
it's new destroyers after the after the uh, uh, the flush deckers, the the Clemsons and the Wicks, that they had to have a range of at least five thousand nautical miles. That was the minimum. Mm-hmm. You had to have at least five thousand nautical miles. And today, a Burke has a range of four thousand nautical miles. I mean, you can't even get across the Atlantic. We did an exercise in twenty twenty where they they sent uh, ships from uh, uh, they loaded out uh, ships in. Beaumont, Texas, to go to Europe as part of Defender 2020, as part of this uh, military rotation exercise. And the only ship that could escort them was a uh, Ticonderoga-class cruiser, the Vela Gulf, because it was the only one that had the range to do it. Nothing else could go that distance and have the fuel to do it. This national security cutter can. It can go 12,000 miles. Why? Because it has diesel engines and a gas turbine engine to give it that little bit of boost at the end when you need the 30 knots. But the rest of the time, it operates on diesel. This is the other element, mm. too, is, you know, OPVs are designed to maintain presence. They're d- designed to be off the coast and do what you want. They don't need to be coming in and out of port a lot. And the analogy I always use is cruise ships. Cruise ships are the per- perfect analogy to me because they, they are cruise ships are, are among many things, but their engineering plants are amazing because they're redundant. They, they're, the redundancy that's built into a cruise ship is fantastic because they have extra engines because they're always taking one engine apart and doing maintenance on it. And they have a a system that allows them to operate off the coast. They don't need to be operating at 21 knots all the time, but what's important for the cruise ship is to arrive in the port at the time and be moving between ports on a schedule. All you have to do is have the presence. You just have to have the presence. And every now and then when you do need the speed, you need to be able to produce it. But they have, again, redundancy. I had a, I was on a cruise ship one time and, and I met one of the engineers and he gave me a great tour. We talked about this where he said, I have four main engines. He goes, I only need two. He goes, he goes, I'm always ripping apart one and I have one in backup all the time. And there's a few times on the route where I need to bring the three engines online. He goes, but that's very rare when we have to run between two ports at night. He goes, but most of the time I'm, I've always have redundancy. Well, it's one of the things I would like to I, I'd point out also is uh, if we go back to your, your earlier discussion of the other books and I was thinking, I, I was while listening to you talk, uh, you talk about the cruise ships. I was thinking about that, that as well. The Ali Burke's range is often its range given at its cruising speed, not its maximum speed. So you think no. about that. That's the other thing. The 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 enterprise could the the thing that limited the enterprise's top speed was the fact that her hull started to break apart, and her oh, the torque the, the amount of torque they could put on their propellers and on their shafts before they started ripping them off. The thing that limited most nuclear cru- carriers, the nuclear cruisers, was basically this is how fast we can go with our hull. But if you think about it, when you're dealing with fuel and a range and all the, these things that are economic, economic, if you consider the Council of Geostrategy published yesterday, um, a map given from the first Sea Lords Sea Power Conference in 2023, and it shows steaming times assuming an average speed of 15 knots. And it starts off with, to get to Svalbard, it's six days from the UK. Svalbard is north of Norway. To get to the Caribbean, it's 10 days. To get to Japan, it's three days to Gibraltar. Six days to 
the Suez Canal. It is then seven days to probably, well, sort of roughly the place where we tend to fuel up off the coast of, um, well, the Arabian Peninsula. Then five days to Diego, Diego Garcia. Seven days to the Straits, uh, the Singapore Straits. And then eight days after that to Japan. So you're looking at probably on that route, 15, 18, no, 15, 20, 27, 33, 36 days. Now you can cut a bit of time off that by doing more direct, etc. But that's from the UK if you're sailing that way around. That's not exactly going to be a quick deployment. And that becomes, I think for myself, that becomes the timing clock for operations. Because if I was any power wanting to do cause problem with things, I would want to do it when I, in a way that I could sort of when uh, get it done and all done and myself bedded in before any reinforcements arrive. But the thing is, my life gets a lot more complicated if... I can only in my first wave, in my first, take out present ships, i.e. sloops. Because if I take them out, that's uh, that's a problem. Because, yes, I have to take them out, because otherwise they're going to get in the way. But every time I, the time I spend doing that's going to delay me. And then that's going to mean that the mobilization part of your fleet can deploy and will be deploying from somewhere in strength. It won't have to be waiting for the entire fleet, you know, that was the whole point of the British with the Mediterranean and the, North, uh, the home fleet in the Atlantic. The Mediterranean fleet was the rapid reaction fleet, and that would be the one which would go from the Mediterranean and go through to the Far East if it needed to. And the cruisers and the, and the sloop presence were their presence in peacetime, able to do the government pol policy, but also to understand a bit of a tripwire, but more as a tripwire of, well, you have to deal with us, because if you don't deal with us, we're going to cause trouble. Right, and... and and a couple of things on that. Number one, uh, I have to ask why you weren't at the uh, uh, Council on Geostrategy, the Sea Power Conference there by the Admiralty. Uh, I wasn't I, I was invited. Up, I was upset I didn't get the invite for that one myself, to tell you the truth. I, I wasn't invited. Um, honestly, I think they've got so many Kings alumni there, they just decided they didn't need one more. Uh, yeah, that, did, that the, did seem to be the King's the, alumni the, meeting. The, there the are so right many there. of Andrew Lambert students there. I think they probably decided that, frankly, there were enough of us in the room that they, they, if they, if they'd had any more, we would have been, we, it would have officially been kind of obvious we were running the whole thing. Um, it does seem like that, but no. I, I was hoping, I was hoping to be the diversity element in that group right there by being the non-King student. But I, I, I just, yes, I you would have been the diversity element. I, I would have been. It was one of the few times that the, the, an older white guy can be the diversity in the group. Is 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 when you're with all the King students right there and alumni. Yeah, but no, I, I think I, I think when you look at that chart, and that chart was a great one. I agree with you. It was really interesting because I I thought the same exact thing when you posted that and you sat there and said this this looks like a chart from the 1930s for deployments. So I was like, man, that's exactly what it looks like. It, it it's it's it is how you're deploying forces across. And you know, I I've been looking again. I go go down those rabbit holes. You start looking at things. And, you know, when you pull up a Burke class destroyer and you look at a, a Burke class destroyer, and this is one of the things I do, is you look at their, their power generation. 
So they generate about 105 horsepower, about about 70, uh, about 70 something thousand kilowatts of power. And then if you go to a Virginia class submarine and you look at the nuclear power plant on a Virginia class submarine, it, it produces a huge amount of power. I mean, it's, it's, it's massive. It is a massive amount of power, 280,000 hmm. horsepower, 210 megawatts. Why are we not having this serious discussion about nuclear power on destroyers? You know, why are the flight Ford Burks or the DDX, DDGXs not going nuclear power? Because we can definitely have the plant. We're producing nuclear plants like crazy for submarines right now. You go back to the old, go from a Virginia class submarine to a Virginia class cruiser. And the Virginia class submarines out, I mean, just out horsepower a Virginia class cruiser. It, it's just it, it's not even it, it's not even in the range. The old Virginia class cruisers uh, had was it sixty thousand uh, oh, horsepower. So, well, the, but but it, like you said, the, the the limitations on nuclear power is literally the hull form and whether the props are going to come shaking off. That's it. You can basically channel everything into the engines and hey, go. If you wanted and you a forty knot ship, you should have just done. They should just gone for a nuclear powered cruiser. Then they could have had a forty. Then they could have said it's a forty knot ship. Yes, it would have been, but it'd been forty knots. No one wanted coming their way ever. And, and, and you know, again, it, it goes especially for the for the global presence mission that, that we keep talking about here. You know, when you run nuclear powered carriers, for example, you need escorts to keep up with it, and and it does a lot for your vessel too. You don't have emissions. You're you're clean. You're green. You're you're not corroding. You know, your radars with smoke and 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 pollution right there. Uh, it makes everything so much easier for you. And plus, all that space where you had uptakes and your stack now can be used, you know, your, enti your entire area above the, the main deck can be used uh, for other things. Mm -hmm. And it, it, to me, again, it, it just seems like we, we, we miss out on these, these discussions and these conversations cool. all the time, because well, this yes, is, maybe. we're getting more power out of smaller nuclear plants than ever before. And it seems like that's conducive to this, because again, the problem you have is is that range limitation. Because you said four thousand miles on a Burke, that's at cruising speed, that's at fifteen knots. When you start going twenty five knots, like you're doing with an aircraft carrier, lots of times to get the wind across the deck and to basically launch, then you're burning a lot more fuel. You're burning three to four times your fuel, which means you're 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 quartering your range at some points. I would also this. The thing I would add is people don't say nuclear ships are expensive, they are. But one of the things the US Navy used to do, which was very sensible, was they would build a class of ships and then they make one of them nuclear powered. So they were doing almost a one in a one in eight, one in one in nine vessels were nuclear powered, or their escort force. And that was actually a very clever way to do it. If you think about it, if you'd approach that policy with the Burks, and if we consider how many Arley Burks there are, because the US Navy's been building a lot of them and is building uh, is building even more. Yeah, it's got to be about 60 or so, 60 or 70 by now. They are planning 90. If you had built one in, let's say, one in nine as nuclear-powered, you'd have 10. You'd be having 10 nuclear-powered ship vessels, which would be more than enough for your needs, for your carriers. And you'd also have 10 Burks, which were very, very much a case of, hello, uh, yes, uh, you, you know all the advantages, all the sort of technology, we share all the costs of upgrades of our missile systems and all our radars and all the things with the rest of the class, so there's nothing ex extra expensive. No, no, the only thing about us is that we share, the, we have the same engines as the carriers we escort. 
Right. And, and, and again, that, that gives you such a versatility that, that you don't have right now. It, it's especially when, when you think about the fact that, okay, one of the things that was not factored into the construction of the Ford class is the ability to use the new lane of the Panama Canal. So it still is, is constrained. It has to go around the long way, either around through the Drake Passage or around the Cape or through the Suez Canal. Uh, we're, we're not factoring those elements into our elements. So we're still operating with two fleets, one in the Atlantic, one in the Pacific that can't swing through. Uh, and, and again, you are constrained by this. I'm doing a whole, you know, what, what, an article writing right now that I've been working a lot on is this issue about early underway replenishment in the Pacific in World War II and how important the fast oilers were, these six fast oilers were to mm. the U.S. Navy. And it's not just you, you tack a fast oiler to a fast carrier task force, but some of these ships were being used to run all the way to the West Coast to go get fuel and bring it back. Because, again, the, the capability in Pearl Harbor, for example, was you had storage capacity there for 4 million barrels of oil. There wasn't 4 million barrels of oil in that facility. Matter of fact, going into early 1942, uh, one of the things that Nimitz notes is the fact that I'm, I'm depleting my stocks. I'm not replenishing them fast enough. Because I just, you know, we're, we're, we're maneuvering so many vessels and we're operating at such high speeds that we are basically burning through the stocks and we're operating further and further from the main base at Pearl Harbor down in the South Pacific uh, when you had the raids going on, that what we need is, is more vessels now. And, and so range became such a big factor. And as you well know, any factor you have, you get Trent on to talk about this. Any anytime you have a logistics planning factor, it's wrong. It, you've underestimated your logistics. You you yes. you know you're going to burn well, through more than what you think. I'm gonna be. I, I am going to be unpopular. I'm probably not going to do much on Twitter about it because, frankly, there's uh, the, the whole group are sort of basically shouting on us. But I'll talk about it in in, um, in next in next build fronts probably. Is that the uh, Type 31 frigates? They just announced they're going to put Mark 41 VLS on them. And lots of people are really, really excited about this. They're going to have 32 Mark 41 BLS. These are our presence forward deployed frigates, going to be all those things. I'm sitting there going, okay, so that's going to be extra crew you're going to have to maintain. That's going to be extra systems you're going to have to maintain all at a distance. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, you can load that up with a quad pack with C Scepter if you want, or all sorts of things. But I'm sitting there going, is this much of a change from what it was originally going to be? Is this that much of an advantage? Oh, was going to considering what you're going to have to do to support it. It's a nice statement to make. It it justifies it. You know, they they were already are built with the foundation structural sets for four eight cell Mark Forty One VLS, and so they're going to be equipped with them. That's all good. That's lovely. But what have you really just announced? You've taken your frigate, which was being built with. Would I always prefer those things be built for, but not with, uh, uh, built with, but not for? And you're going to add those in, but that's not really much of an announcement in terms of capability for what Britain probably needs. You know, extra Type 26s, extra things like that would have been helpful. And the reason this links into the American discussion is 
I see a lot of concentration going on about the VLS numbers. And uh, VLS numbers do matter. But the other capabilities of ships keep getting forgotten, like the ma maintenance of it, the sustainment of it, the logistics of it, its range with the Burks. They are wonderful ships, but they are also, let's be honest, the flower of 1970s technology. And they're still being built the same design because the US Navy keeps balking at the replacement of trying to move to something else. And so they keep building them. And as great as they are, great as the design is, that's, you know, if you consider one of the things you could have done if you'd gone for a new design is you could have built something which had longer range. You could have gone to it and gone, right, then I'm going to go for a diesel gas electric mix. And I'm going to have electric batteries for if I'm doing anti-submarine warfare, I can keep so I can go really quiet. I'm going to have a gas turbine and I'm going to have diesel engines and I'm going to pick which one I turn on. And then they're going to generate power onto the ray, a ring. And then I have the thrusters being powered by electrics and it's all one system. So if I want to do long range cruising, I've got the diesel. They'll just keep me going forever. But if I need to go high speed, turn on the gas. I think this comes down to the whole issue that we, you guys have talked about consistently is, is design of, of, of vessels. I always go back to the interwar period and you look at, and I'll use the U S Navy as the example, look at the, look at the cruisers, look at the destroyers. And what you see is classes. I mean, but each of the classes are developing on top of each other. You know, you go from the Sim, you know, Farragut to the Sims, to the Porter, to, you know, in, in terms of destroyers, same thing with cruisers. You did the great series on, on, on treaty cruisers, Pensacola, to uh you know new orleans to uh i think i'm backwards uh northampton it's northampton and new orleans and portland mm. and 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 what you see is is progression so that by the time you get to war you have the cleveland class you have the baltimore class you okay now you can mass produce your war built cruisers now this is what you need to go you know this is the, when the fletchers come in this is this is when you have uh, the ability to basically produce these vessels let's be honest the fletchers and, come after the sims where you learn a lot of lessons right and 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 I, the problem you have is is you don't see that in in you don't see it for example in the nimitz class carriers where you basically are building very similar ships from end to end uh, you don't see it with the Burks with really just three, maybe four vari variations on the Burke when there probably should have been 10, you know, of some kind where you're progressively adding new technology and changing things. You know, to keep calling it a Burke when you're 60 something holes in, you know, you know, a flight three Burke is is almost nothing compared to what the original Burke was in terms of its technology and elements. And, and I, I think this is where now all of a sudden you get into this idea, well, we need a completely new class. And, and instead of really looking at how classes evolve over time. And, and again, like you said, you could, you could have produced some variants of the Burke class with either nuclear power or even, I would argue, diesel power to, to yeah, they're not going to be as fast as the, as, as the Burks, but they have a longer range. And, and you know, you have a long range version of that. Look at the gearing in the summers, Sumner class, where you, you know, put a little mid body into them to give them some extra fuel so mm. that they can stay on range for a longer period of time. Uh, you know, you get those, those variations in there. And, and, and we just don't see that today. I, th I think a lot of it has to do with, with it's easier to build these ships now that you have them and you can just go in and just kind of run a, 
a, a, a length with them. But then we get to these massive design changes where you get the zoom waltz. I mean, to look to look at the jump from Burke to zoom walt is like holy cow! It's it, it's it's it, it's revolutionary. And then people not are surprised when things go wrong. Yeah, you do a massive I, well, design the jump, then people go, "Oh, I'm so surprised there's been issues." Instead of going, "Well, yes, you've jumped about four generations in one leap," so yeah, things have gone wrong. I'm surprised. I, it, it's it's how you put every new technology you can possibly conceive on the Ford when it's like, wait a minute, you're bringing an American nuclear-powered aircraft carrier in every 25 years for a massive overhaul for a nuclear refueling. Why didn't I don't know somebody stick an electric, you know, electromagnetic catapult on one of these things in one of those refits? Why why not change the arresting gear when you're doing this when she's yeah, in, are in the shipyard for five someone years? Someone should think before they act. I. I, again, it, it's but but that's what you saw during this period of time where they would experiment. Hey, you know, I got a great idea. Let's put float planes on destroyers. Let's try that. It's like, OK, that doesn't work very well. It's too small. But you know what? You tried it and and you went through the experimentation. You did it and you sit there and say, now, you know, float planes on destroyers are not going to work. We're going to take those catapults off the Fletchers and, and we're going to go. We'll leave it for cruiser size warfare uh, ships to have that. But you, you don't see that kind of going on. And what you wind up with is LCS, Zumwalt, Ford, which have this big problem. Yeah. I, do, I, I just don't know yeah. how. I, 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 I don't know if it's a historical loss that they don't realize this or it, it's 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 a change in, in structure. You know, I think the U.S. Navy goes back to end of time type end of history issues where they think they had to con completely reform what the u.s navy was supposed to look like going into the 21st century but now they're back into a great power competition and that cold war navy that they really need doesn't exist anymore and i think same thing with the british navy where the royal navy is really trying to look at how how do you how do you maintain a forward presence east of suez it's It's difficult when you sort of you, you sit uh, sit there sometimes in I don't know about you, but I sometimes sit there in the meetings and the briefings where they announce the big flashy thing. And I go, yeah, that's great. Now tell me about the dozen or so other things that need to be done to underpin that. And it's like that with the Fords. They're so obsessed with putting the technology on the new ship, they forget that they could have tried this technology out on the other ships. And we did actually do this quite well, I have to admit, with the Type 23s. There was one thing, the Royal Navy was quite, has been quite good. Basically, most of the equipment that's going in the Type 26s has been tried out on Type 23s already. That's good. I'm worried about the Type 83s because I have a feeling that we're going to try a generational jump again, like we did with the Type 45s, and I think that could be fun. It's necessary, but I think there are going to be issues with it. But every time... I see announcements in defense. They try and make that they talk about the this is gonna sound weird, but the sexy things, you know, VLS, this strike capability, and I was going, yes, offensive power. And you're going, that's great. But let's start off with right then. So you want to add this force to that. Okay, have you got the raw, have you got the auxiliaries for it to sustain it? Have you got the logistics to move that forward? What about the personnel numbers? Have you got enough people to so that people can actually have a home life as well as being constantly forward deployed? And I did have an interesting conversation with someone, which was, uh, with someone which was, well, if you sign up to join Navy, you expect not to have a home life. And you go, 
Yeah, that might have worked, I don't know, 80 odd years ago as a policy, but it doesn't work today. It doesn't. And you need to start, you need to think these things through. And it's very difficult to get people to do the full length of joined up thinking. It's like, if you ask someone to talk about uh, talk about the Navy at a personnel level, they start talking to you about thousands of personnel. Oh, we have 20-odd thousand if the UK, we are 100,000 or so, you know, dependent on the Navy. So I go, no, no, no. That's not the figure I want to hear about. It's how many personnel do you have to have on deployed on ships? Then basically times that by about three, because that's probably how many you need. And if those figures don't match, you've got trouble. And well, and you burn through people. I, I mean, one of the things you see is when you deploy, I mean, you start burning through people. I'm doing uh, one of the, the book I'm writing right now is on when the U.S. Navy deployed to Ireland in World War One. And one of the things they found out is when you start operating destroyers on patrols in the Western approaches, you know, you go out for four days and you're in for two. Uh, you're operating at 60, 66%, you know, basically you're, you're at sea, 66% burn through crews, you burn through a cruise a lot. One of the things I find from Admiral Sims are these notes saying there, we need replacement officers. I need replacement chiefs. I need replacement petty officers because we're just getting hurt. I mean, guys are getting thrown around. They're getting hurt. Uh, we're burning through there's, there's, there's issues when you're at sea that, 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 that are different when you're deployed. And we need that kind of thing. And, and, you know, what's really amazing is, is you read these, these, these statements and yeah, it's a hundred years ago, but it doesn't change that much. It really doesn't when you start no. operating ships in an area, but you know, it's like, Hey, we need replacement props. We need, you know, we need all the things that the consumables we're going to be running through. I need boiler tubes. I need, I need all these things that are going to be the problem. And one of the things that's really interesting is is here's this forward deployment. We're going to go 3,000 miles across the Atlantic to to Southern Ireland, which isn't you know it's it's not it's not an area it's not the wild wild west it's it, it's not bereft of areas, you know. So what do they do? They reopen the the dry dock in Queenstown so that they can do immediate repairs when the ships come in. They uh, contract with Camel Laird so that they can bring three destroyers over every month for overhauls, and you know yeah. they get themselves into a routine where they operate and the reason they're able to maintain a kind of two thirds deployment level is because they're, they're building up. They bring destroyer tenders over, they bring ex extra crews over. And then one of the things they find out is, okay, we're building new destroyers back in the United States, the flush deckers. How are we going to man them? Well, we're going to take a quarter of a crew of an active destroyer. We're going to take the executive officer and we're going to take one fourth of the crew and they're going to be the nucleus for a new destroyer crew. And we're going to send you replacements on there. And so this is the way we're going to, you know, increase our, 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 uh, our units. And oh, by the way, the destroyers we're sending over now, the, the, the Wix class, which are these huge 111 class of destroyers, we know what we want in those destroyers because we've built classes up to that point. We built the Smith, the Paulding, all these little yeah. classes. And we know what a thousand ton destroyer should look like or a 1200 ton destroyer should look like. And it's not perfect. We still got to make a little bit of changes. We, we misjudge a couple of things. We really could use a little higher forecastle going through the Atlantic because we realize we're, we're burying the nose in, in the ocean. But, you know, basically we figured out a lot. 
and and I, I just don't see navies doing that right now, unfortunately. They don't get the tr chance to. And the trouble is, everything's now. But it, the cheapest thing to do is do computer simulations. And which miss so much when you do that. Yes, it's it's hard to say. It's like yes, my, um, the thing is, I have two points to this: is that my dad, as I think I've told you before, was involved in a lot of the developments of computer-aided designs for ships and for shipbuilding. He did a lot of the work on it, and he helped do out a lot of the theory and a lot of design, so much so that he was the person who tended to get called in when people did try to do ships on computer design, and it wasn't working as it was supposed to, and they couldn't figure out why. So that was how my dad basically earned a lot of his money in his later years, was being the person who would go in, look at the computer system and go, it's wrong, and tell them why, because he knew what the stuff, the foundations of the computer system was based on, the details it was based on. But he would tell you always, and it was him who I picked this phrase up from, garbage in, garbage out. You know, it's it, it's a case of it, it, you, you, what you get out of a computer simulation is as good as what you put in. And if you don't, and the trouble is the computer is always a facsimile of the real world. It's not the real world. And until you build something in the real world and test it through, you're never going to find out how it really works, if that makes sense. No, I, I, I think you're exactly I mean, you get a lot of advantages today. We have, we have the ability to really kind of foresee how things work out. But, you know, the other day you, you were all talking about, you know, the changes that have been done to the type 23s where you envision the type 23 should have been long retired by now, but you, yeah. you've got a lot of life out of them. You were able to keep them running a lot longer. And I think one of the issues they had is they experimented with them quite a bit. They were able to really try things out on them so that when you bring the 26s online, a lot of what is, is going into the 26s have been, has been fielded in, in the 23s. I mean, the zoom walls are the classic case of that with that gun system they had on board. Why, 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 why? this is a gun system that, that just didn't make any sense unless and then you, you cancel the entire class because of the gun system. And it's a case of no. And why are you not putting one of those guns on flight three Burke class destroyers then so that you are mass producing the ammunition, which becomes the issue? Uh, you know what? You know, now we're going to get rid of the entire gun set. We already have six of them, you know, two sets on each of the uh, on the zoom walls. And now we're going to get rid of them. It's like it, it makes very little sense. I mean, you know, the Navy tried back in I think it was in the 90s when they put a, an eight inch gun. You know, they're trying this high velocity uh, rapid shooting eight inch gun. Uh, they were trying a 203 millimeter, but uh, you know that was going to be the the cruiser gun. They were going to put that on the Tycos at the time instead of the five inch, and and they did everything they could to, to torpedo that. They didn't want that for some reason because again missiles were going to be the key. But as you know very well, you know it's it, you can't replenish missiles at sea. It's the one thing we can't do. We don't know how to do that. But you can replenish ammunition. You can do gun ammunition without a problem because yeah. you can put pallet loads of gun ammunition over. And, you know, one of the biggest attributes I thought of the Zoom Waltz was, okay, this is going back to guns. We're going to have two big, massive guns on it that, that operate. And now you're pulling them off to put hypersonics on them, which is, again, here's a ship that's that's commissioned, but it's going to be useless for four years, five years, till you undergo this huge conversion effort. And honestly, it would have been... If you kept them in production, you could have just done, right, the ones were in the production. We're going to do a batch two, and they'll have hypersonics. 
And what you'd actually sensibly would have done would have been gone, right then, we're going to replace one of the guns with hypersonics and one of the and leave the other gun. And then you go, hmm, that works. And then maybe for the final third batch, you go, hmm, we'll actually replace both guns with hypersonics because we really want the hypersonic mix. Or you might go, you know what, the hypersonics are great, but that gun's turn out useful, so we're going to keep them the same. That's what building the ships gives you the options of. Yeah, and, and you start to realize that, okay, what we initially started out with isn't what we want. Again, look at those yeah. interwar destroyers and look at how they started versus how they ended up at the end of the war. And, you know, you, one of the things the U.S. Navy does is realize, okay, 5-inch 25s aren't the thing we want. We want 5-inch 38s because they're dual purpose, you know, and it's oh. great to have twin mounts on these destroyer leaders but man they're really top heavy and we really need to cut some of the mounts off and and put uh, lighter anti-aircraft weapons on it and and so you know your vest your vessels evolve and you know the idea that we're going to keep burks for 45 years 40 to 45 years is crazy it's it, it's it's you know why are we not evolving that class more i understand well, the, 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 the power the constraints become an age of sail ship of the line yeah exactly you just kept the same design going for half a century I, but there I was always, a reason you did that in the age of sale. Technology wasn't moving that frigging quickly. I, I always, I always love when, when everything I ever read about Pearl Harbor is, well, you know, the old battleships, you know, the the old, you know, the newest battleship <laughs> there was like 15 years old. It was like, it was like, it's not old. It's like the, even even Nevada was like 20 years old. It's like it's not that old. It's like why are no. we saying this all the time? But no, no, it's 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 a. Hey, look, it's kind of like the idea that the Royal Navy didn't well, didn't like aircraft carriers. And then you sit there and look at them. Who has the most aircraft carriers in the 1920s and 30s? The Navy, which, which according to all of you, didn't like aircraft carriers. Right. And, yeah. And who's yeah. Who's, who's building them? It, it's it, it's again, it's but but it, I, I also argue too. look, look at look at the carrier de development you guys do. And, and I think it's really important because, again, what carriers do you want up front? What carriers do you want with the battle fleet? What are they supposed to do? And th this is where I, I think the U.S. Navy, if it's really serious about wanting to increase its numbers, has to look at how it allocates its forces in many ways. There's a great picture somebody posted of the U.S. Navy in, in Japan and in, in Yokosuka. And, you know, it's, it's, it's the Ronald Reagan. It's a big deck amphib. It's several cruisers and Burke-class destroyers. Mm. And it's like, okay, that's a good forward presence. It's, it's pretty powerful. But you're also in Japan. <laughs> you know, it's pretty close to China. If, uh, I got to say, if, if, if I'm thinking about taking out the U.S. in a move against Taiwan, that's going to be a big presence. Do you want your first-line tripwire force being that close within the missile envelope of DF-21s and 26s. You know, when, when World War II starts in the Pacific, the Asiatic fleet isn't the top-notch fleet. You know, it's a dozen, yeah. it's a dozen uh, flush deckers. You know, it's not because we didn't have other destroyers. We could have put squadrons of, uh, you know, squadron of, of, of Benson-class destroyers out there or, or new type. We didn't want to because you didn't need to because what you needed out there was just the presence mission because a four stacker did exactly what you needed it to do. Yeah. I, 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 I think they, they keep missing what the role of that is. And I think there's a lot of navies out there right now that are, that are looking at it. Look at the Italians. You know, I, I love that Italian OPV. It's just, you know, it's number one to me. It's, it's beautiful. It's got the it's funky just bow. Sexy. 
It's just it is. It's, it's, it is. It is. It is a sexy boat. You know, it, 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 it's, it's and, and the Italians are, are making a statement with that. It's like, OK, this is something you don't always see. And the Italians are really good at putting together a balanced fleet. You know, they've done this forever. They really do. There they, are three navies do. I keep watching. I keep watching the Italians, the Singaporeans, and the Danish navies and going, yeah, they're getting it right. And they the are. Italian navy is the forgotten navy of World War II or pretty much every war. That People go, you know, oh, it's the German navy, you know, the British are worrying about, or it's, you know. They're going, no, 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 it's the Italian navy. It's the Italian Navy which absorbed quite a lot of the Royal Navy for World War II because they're I, sat in the Mediterranean. And whereas the Germans occasionally managed to have one or even two battleships operating at the same time, the Italians regularly have six. And, There's and a difference. Clear, I was just listening to a podcast where where it's a World War II podcast. And, and of course, the bashing of the Italian Navy starts. And it's like, it's like, stop. It's like the Italian, you know, the greatest what if in World War II for me is the Italian Navy has fuel, you know, assume yeah. the Italian Navy has fuel. Then the everything spent a lot of effort making sure they didn't have fuel. Right. Because, because that's the biggest change because if the Italian Navy has fuel, if it's unfettered by fuel, oh man, it is, it is a bigger problem than ever before because the Italians are always running out. Yeah. Again, I think we go back to logistics, one of my pet peeves is is you know why why is it for example the imperial japanese navy doesn't send the entire japanese navy down the guadalcanal in 1942 like they did to uh, midway and my argument is that they don't have the fuel they, they, they have yeah. to get the fuel back to the island back to the home islands and so the oilers the 18 oilers that followed the fleet to midway can't do that to guadalcanal so that's why you don't see, you know, all the battleships going down there and all the fleet going down there. And yeah, no, this is the point. Anyway, I think I have taken up enough of your time. Well, because I Alex, think it's been... it was just the two of us. I don't know if we qualify as bilge pumps or not. I think it's a bilge pump and uh, and Sal. That's I think. That's I, think the way we'll, it is. I think we'll call it bilge pumps because you know, in nice way, as as we said before, you are an honorary bilge pump. And um, yeah, I, I, I listen. Let's be clear. Let's be clear about this, Alex. I, I am the unwanted American cousin of bilge <laughs> pumps. It's the one, you know, the one person in the family that no one likes to talk about. It's like, yeah, he's 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 there, but you uh, know, we we like we like having you on. But uh, no, it is fun. I will add before we go that we have just we, we're of course my me myself and Drac are actually off to Australia. We're still hoping to somehow try and meet up with Jamie. And actually do Bill Trumps in person. It's a shame, Sal, we haven't managed to raise enough money. We could actually get you out there as well, because that could be <laughs> really fun. Having, uh, uh, you know, it's a there's, a there's a list of a couple of people we'd like to sort of do a sort of in-person bilge pumps with and get the uh, the idea was at one point being, if we may raised more money than we needed, so do we get Sal and Glenn Stewart to Australia and put <laughs> us all in a group and just see what happens? Hey, and I think about Australia. Australia is yeah. one of the few places I haven't been, so that's 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 it's a place gonna, I'd, I'd love to go. I've been, I, I just did a couple of videos on New Zealand. I'm trying to get the New Zealanders, the the Kiwis, to invite me down. It's gonna be good. We're going to be uh, we're, we're aiming for the Western Australian Museum uh, in Perth, or um, sort of on the seventh and eighth of June. We'll, we'll actually no, we're going to the one in Amity uh albany on the 8th of june uh then we are going to go to melbourne and we're going to see um h hope tree hms castle main and pollywood side and uh then we're off to brisbane where we get to see hms diamantina 
at the Queensland Mar- um, uh, Mar- Maritime Museum, plus other things. They are that I have to say, some of the Australian museums have been absolutely amazing. I mean, they're literally gone. So uh, we'll close this day. So come in for filming on this day, and then do you want to come in the next day and do a talk when we're open yeah. to the public? And we're sort of going, we'll do that. We can do that. I, I you know when, when uh, Drac did his uh, the original tour here in the U.S. I was amazed uh, at the reception he got, and at some I, I was also amazed at some places he went, which didn't realize who he was. Which is like, are you crazy? It's like this is going to be such huge elements uh, of of opening up. You know, this I think is... what Battleship New Jersey did during COVID really demonstrated what a maritime museum can do. And so I'm I'm glad you guys are getting this trip. Western Australia is going to be amazing. I I don't think people realize the importance of that region. Uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm really, it's an area in world war two that does not get looked at enough in my opinion. But uh, you know, we're sitting there there and I, I arrive a couple of days before everyone else because I have a sort of family birthday party down there and a few other things. And I'm sort of setting up all the admin because I'm doing, doing all the emails and admin for people. And um, so I'm going to be wandering around, I'm going to get an extra day, hopefully, to wander around that museum, because I'm going to be hopefully be awake to wander around that museum for an extra day. And it's going to be interesting, because that is the museum whose archives we are in many ways most sort of going, okay, what can we find here? because we know they have the largest and probably the only collection of Crimean War era steam engines from vessels which actually were built and served in the Crimean War. And you sit there and go, they're in Australia, they're not in Crimea, they're not in France, they're not in the UK, they're in Australia, those engines. That the amount of stuff which has ended up in Australia and it's just a case of okay. I know it's expensive to get it back from there, but seriously, oh yeah, it's all there. It, it, it's you guys are gonna have a great trip. I am uh, yes. very jealous as always, but I, I think you guys are gonna have a great one. It's 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 always good uh, for you guys to hit the road and uh, be together. I, I'm looking forward to. I'm hoping uh, 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 Drac and maybe you come over to the U.S. for another one. Maybe one of the uh, Naval Academy history uh, symposiums or something like that, or Society well, of Military History. I'm always happy to come over. It's, it's one of the interesting things. I was, t- you know, with the Corvette conference and the Honeys Corvette sort of thing that came up. And at one point they were talking about there being funding available because the trouble is for me, being a contract lecturer, and I always talk about this publicly, um, I'm not sure about the universities in the US, but in the UK they have a habit of sometimes forgetting that their contract lecturers need to be paid. Yeah. Either well, on no, time or at all. We we have that problem too. We have the problem with with, with full time professors sometimes. Yeah, we haven't quite got that bad yet. Give oh, we time. have. We have. But uh, I I'm looking forward to uh, the trip. It'll be great to see if uh, the three of you uh, can get together in the same spot. It'll be fun. Anyway, thank you very much, Sal. Thank you for joining us. Well, for joining me. And apologies to the rest of my from the rest of my colleagues. And take care. Appreciate it. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.